You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome to Episode 3 of the Yale Press Podcast, the podcast of Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondak, and I'll be your host until the end of the show. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Sidney D. Kirkpatrick about the life of 19th century American painter Thomas Aikens. you got to understand, uh, he was the first male art professor in a major American institution to encourage women to become professional painters. Uh, he was the first administrator to hire female faculty. You know, so there are plenty of scandals, of course, um, but I think the same is true for most individuals who are, who are a century or more ahead of their time. They don't fit in. Dr. Gerald Edelman, about the intersection of brain science and human knowledge. Descartes' notion, cogito ergo sem, I think, therefore I am, or je pense donc je suis. That is a so-called effort on his part to find a foundational basis for all of knowledge. And I'm afraid that... Uh, it's based on false premises. Leonie Gombrich, about E.H. Gombrich's A Little History of the World. Uh, so my grandfather, who had this experience that we mentioned earlier about writing to the daughter of friends, did a sample chapter for him. I think it was the chapter on the age of chivalry, and showed it to Neurath, and Neurath thought it was great, and said, I would love you to write the book. Uh, the only trouble is he was still on the translation schedule, which is considerably shorter than the writing schedule. And he said, I, I do need the book in six weeks' time. Do you think you can do it? and John Marsleff and Tony Angel about the relationship between crows and man. Allow me uh, to indulge you with a raven call. Please do. It's one of uh, many, many, many calls that they have compared to the conventional crow call that we're all familiar with. Stay tuned. In November of 2006, the Thomas Aikens painting, The Gross Clinic, was sold for $68 million, a record price for a pre-World War II American artwork, an artwork which was dismissed in its own time as too graphic. In his book, The Revenge of Thomas Aikens, biographer Sidney D. Kirkpatrick discusses the life and career of the man now considered the finest American painter of the 19th century. Sidney Kirkpatrick is the author of many books, including A Cast of Killers and Edgar Case, An American Prophet. Sidney Kirkpatrick, thank you for being on the Yale Press podcast today. I'm pleased to join you. So why did you name this book The Revenge of Thomas Eakins? Well, I think it makes an important statement about who he was and our appreciation of him today. Eakins' greatness it was misunderstood in, in, in his time, especially in Philadelphia, you know, where he lived and worked his entire life, which he loved more than any other place on earth. In his 40-year career, he had only a single one-man showing of his art. You know, more of his portraits were destroyed than the work of any other great modern artist. When he died in 1916, the vast majority of his paintings, some you know, nearly 300, were still sitting in his house. Today he's become an immortal. Many consider him to be our greatest painter, at the very least our greatest portrait painter. He's recognized worldwide. A century earlier, no one would have believed such a thing possible. The city that turned a cold shoulder to him now is a traffic circle and a park named in his honor. $68 million is being raised by the city to purchase the Gross Clinic, his masterpiece. That's the highest price ever paid for a painting 
by American-born artists of his generation. I think it's become indispensable to Philadelphia's idea of itself as a cultural landmark and understanding and appreciating ourselves as a nation. That's the revenge. Thomas Aikens has recently, really since 2000, been the focus of several studies. There's been your book. There have been others. I want to get into your motivations for writing the book in a moment. But within these different books, there's been a lot of speculation about parts of Thomas Aikens' life. There have been questions of whether he's homosexual. There are questions about misogyny. Uh, There have been questions about whether he seduced two of his models who then went mad. As his biographer, one of his biographers, what did you think, how did you see your responsibility in looking into these rumors? Well, uh, certainly those kinds of questions, homosexuality, misogyny, they're always coming up. Um, you know, and, and I think this is a result because so much psychoanalyzing has been done of the man through his paintings. Uh, the, the, the paintings become uh, like some kind of Rorschach test. People tend to see what they want in them. Uh, a portrait picturing a nude man about to dive into the water well, that's viewed as evidence of homosexuality. Uh, a, a, a painting picturing a patient on an operating table you know, with his buttocks exposed, it's also evidence of homosexuality. Or, you know, uh, in, in depending on the interpretation, homophobia. I, you know, the same is true with, with the alleged misogyny. Uh, painting of a woman undergoing a mastectomy is somehow evidence of evil intentions. Uh, you know, I, I'm not an interpretive art historian. I'm a biographer. You know, and, and thanks to the discovery, the, uh, actually the r- relatively recent discovery of the Bregler papers, um, you know, where we have Aikens' own correspondence, his diaries, you know, uh, along with details of his early engagement, his marriage. Well, it's clear to me that, you know, he wasn't a homosexual, and it's, it's, I think it's important to say this, say that. Uh, as I have, uh, you know, though, though some people have pointed out the disproportionately larger number of fo- uh, photographs of uh, male nude models that he took than he did female, I think if you really study the record, you, you'll discover that you know that's not really true. Little digging, and and you'll see that he took plenty more photographs of nude women. Um, these were destroyed after his death to protect the identities of the w- women who posed for him. You know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that he lived in a, a kind of leave-it-to-beaver household. Uh, he didn't. Uh, you know, there are many sort of unpleasant male chauvinistic tendencies. But I think at the same time, you got to understand, uh, he was the first male art professor in a major American institution to encourage women to become professional painters. Uh, he was the first administrator to hire female faculty. You know, so there are plenty of scandals, of course, um, but I think the same is true for most individuals who are, who are a century or more ahead of their time. Uh, they don't fit in. Uh, Aikens' teaching practices and his art uh, became something of a lightning rod, I think, for the, the conflicted issues of the day. Uh, troubled people as well as talented people, were attracted to him because they believed he could understand what they were going through. So what prompted you to write the book? Uh, Well, actually, um, I have a stepdaughter who studied art. Um, The the book is co-dedicated to her. 
a few years ago, um, she, she underwent open-heart surgery. It was a major thing for her, for all of us, really. Um, and I think what was interesting to me uh, was to see how that experience changed the way she was looking at art and science. He got her interested in studying biology, practical anatomy, you know, and ultimately medicine. Uh, today, she's she's doing medical illustrations for a heart surgeon. Now, what was interesting is that Thomas Aikens went the other direction. He was a young medical student who was studying surgery, and in the process of studying surgery, in the process of going through medical school, he became interested in painting. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it got me thinking about the relationship between art and science, how one informs the other. Uh, so I wanted to find out as much as I could about him. The Revenge of Thomas Aikens can be found at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Sidney D. Kirkpatrick, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. What can recent advances in the study of the human brain tell us about theories of human knowledge? In his book, Second Nature, Brain Science and Human Knowledge, Dr. Gerald Edelman looks into the relationship between the development of the brain and epistemology, the philosophy of human knowledge. Dr. Gerald Edelman is director of the Neurosciences Institute and professor of neurobiology at the Scripps Research Institute in San Diego, California. He is the winner of the 1972 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Dr. Gerald Edelman, thank you for being on the Yale podcast today. Thank you. The name of your book is Second Nature. What is Second Nature? Second Nature is related to habits so completely ingrained that it seems innate. And so it means that uh, you don't have to do any further learning. It seems to be right part of the way you are. And, of course, I use the term in another way and, and explain that in the book, namely that there is nature and then there's human nature or second nature, and they don't always correspond. A term out of your book that you use is neural Darwinism, and I understand this has been a theme in several of your books. Could you explain what neural Darwinism is? Neural Darwinism refers to the fact uh, that uh, to explain how the brain works, it will not do to say that it's a digital computer. There's enormous amounts of evidence to indicate it's not, in fact, a digital computer or any kind of computer of the kind we use practically from day to day. In fact, the brain itself is a selectional system. No two brains are, in fact, alike by the time an individual has any experience, even in twins. And so neural Darwinism is based on the idea that Darwin had of population thinking, namely that if you had a large population, say, of individuals in a species, and each one differed in a certain way, some of them would be more fit than others to match what happened unexpectedly in the environment, and they would survive and give rise to progeny. Well, this idea applies very much to the brain as well, and, the, and hence neural Darwinism. When the brain develops, it develops in such a way that neurons that fire together, nerve cells that fire together, wire together, and that depends on the unique individual experience of that uh, animal. And thus, the next thing that happens is the connections between nerve cells depend upon what you've been exposed to in their strength. And so just a huge number of different repertoires of different nerve cells responding to possibly unexpected events, hence neural Darwinism. As I understand in the book, uh, the sequence of consciousness, as you lay it out, is that beings begin to have a, a limited sense of consciousness. Then once they, a being be, is able to put language together, that that opens up a whole, I want to say, uh, 
palette of different ways to experience the world. Well, yes, but uh, that com- what you've just said compresses an awful lot of stuff. Let's try it this way. Okay. We all know what consciousness is. It's that which you lose when you fall into a deep, dreamless slumber, and that which you regain when you wake up. Or the same, say, for deep anesthesia. Uh, but, of course, that's an intuitive kind of no. It's not a- an accurate scientific description of what that knowledge is. And so uh, uh, animals, we suspect other than chimpanzees and higher apes, uh, have what we call primary consciousness. They have the ability to make really huge numbers of discriminations with a part of their brain called the thalamocortical system, which is underlying consciousness in large measure. And uh, they can, but they can't really tell narratives. They don't have narrative capability, nor can they project the way Iago does to undo Othello. Maybe the best way of putting it is if you kick a dog, the next time he sees you, he may run or bite you but he doesn't sit around in the interim time uh, plotting to remove your tenure. But when you get to human beings, humans are unique in this one respect and different from all other animals. They have true language. And when you have language, you can get higher order consciousness or consciousness of consciousness. You're no longer bound just to the signals that are coming in or some short-term memories, but rather you have an ability through the lexicon of language to, in fact, refer your consciousness to that and thus develop a social self based on a speech community. And it's that higher order consciousness that invests the whole field we call epistemology or the theory of knowledge. What is the relationship between higher order consciousness and another term you use in the book, qualia? Well, qualia refer, uh, presumably, although we're not absolutely sure, we can only uh, deduce this, qualia refer to things like the warmness of warmth, the greenness of green, and as I use it in the book, to the whole scene that you have in the unitary scene of consciousness that we all have, namely, you you are aware of the seat you're sitting in, you hear noises, you smell smells, you see a visual scene, and that that changes. But you can't really limit the scene to one thing, for example, a pencil and nothing else. And so uh, I use the term in this larger sense, and it is that which is the great mystery of consciousness in the past, namely what they call the phenomenology or the phenomenal aspect of consciousness, what it is like to be a certain kind of creature like us. And uh, Quelia referred to that. According to the theory I develop in this book, uh, Quelia are the discriminations that are being made by your nervous system in this incredible array of, of repertoires of different neurons. And so uh, the exact experience that you're having is not available to me in all detail. I can only do it by watching your behavior and exchanging reports with you. And we can do better with that as humans than we can with animals. But with new brain science, we're now being able to non-invasively explore the brain activity. And I think we're going to get very far in understanding what the basis of consciousness and knowledge is. The whole concern of the book is the following. Epistemology in the classical philosophical sense has been the idea of justified true belief. How do you know that something is true? And it is a very formal kind of approach to the theory of knowledge. Now, the philosopher Willard van Norman Quine proposed that you naturalize epistemology by making it a branch of psychology. But he was a kind of uh, philosophical behaviorist, and he left that uh, to be concerned mainly, that psychology was concerned mainly with... um, the world of physics and your skin or sensory receptors. 
what I do is say, no, you have to go all the way to the increasing knowledge of the brain itself within each individual, and therefore consciousness becomes important, and you have to have a brain-based epistemology based on the research that's currently accelerating in neuroscience. And that brain-based epistemology, I got that a book that you think that this is, this brings to kind of a conclusion, the dualism that uh, Brooke came up with uh, Descartes in the 17th century. Oh, yeah. Descartes' notion, cogito ergo sem, I think, therefore I am, or je pense donc je suis. That is a so-called effort on his part to find a foundational basis for all of knowledge. And I'm afraid that uh, it's based on false premises. Uh, in fact, the notion of a naturalized epistemology is the one that I think is the one that one should favor, and that all the evidence is for. So Descartes was a very great philosopher, in fact, maybe the founder of modern philosophy, but this time I think he played a few wrong notes. Second Nature, Brain Science and Human Knowledge is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Dr. Gerald Edelman, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. In 1936, the celebrated art historian E.H. Gombrich was a 26-year-old freshly minted Ph.D. looking for work. As we will hear in this interview with his granddaughter, Leonie Gombrich, it was during this time that he wrote his first book, A Little History of the World, a children's history book. Leonie Gombrich, thank you so much for being on the Yale Press podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me. What was your grandfather's aim in writing this book? Well, I think that um, what he wanted to prove to himself was that it would be possible to explain any concept, no matter how complicated, up to a point, to a child if you used clear and kind of friendly enough language to do so. And uh, his, his great hero was the Irish satirist Jonathan Swift. And I don't know if it's an apocryphal tale, but my grandfather used to tell us that Swift was known for when he had written something, he would ask all the members of his household, meaning, you know, his the, the servants and the scullery maid and the butler and who all had different degrees of education and, and many, none at all, to come in and he would read to them what he had written. And if any one of them couldn't understand it, then he would rewrite it until they could. And this was my grandfather's model for clarity of writing. So I think that was one of one of the things that he wanted to do. Wasn't there also a story that before your grandfather took on this assignment that he was writing to a, a young girl trying to explain to her what he was doing? Yes, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. He uh, had some friends of his had a, a little daughter. I think she must have been about eight or nine years old. And uh, I'm not sure who they were. I don't know their name. But anyway, he apparently, when he was a PhD student, he used to come around to their house pretty often. And when he got into the writing up part of the PhD and they didn't see him so often, uh, their daughter wanted to know where he was. He was obviously something of a, a favorite of hers. And so he wrote her a, at first just a little note to say what he was up to and why he wasn't coming around for dinner. Um, and what he ended up doing in writing to her was trying to tell her what his PhD was about, which was about Giulio Romano's frescoes in the Palazzo del Te in Mantova, in a language that she would enjoy and understand, which indeed she did, and he enjoyed doing it. And so that was one of the things that gave him, uh, when he got the commission to write the book, that gave him the confidence to think that he, he, he might be able to do it. So now about this commission, it's it's a pretty famous story about uh, about how an English publisher went to him to try to get him to write a book. Would you mind telling? It? Yes. Um, what happened was it was the, the, the publisher was was Austrian who first approached him, but it was 
Uh, what it was was an acquaintance of his, Thomas Neurath, who later went on to start the Thames and Hudson Press in London, um, was then working as an editor for a publishers in Vienna, and he wanted to start a series of books called Wissenschaft für Kinder, Knowledge for Children. And they, by, by a mutual friend, he had been sent an English history book, and he approached my grandfather and asked him if he would... Uh, take a look at it and see whether he would like the job of translating it and indeed whether he thought it was a good book and worth translating. And my grandfather took one look at it and just thought it was absolute rubbish and in trying to describe that he didn't think it was very good he said to Neurath, you know it's so bad I think I could write a better one myself almost just as a figure of speech. And Neurath said, if you really think you could write one yourself I, I would like to see you do it. And so my grandfather, who'd had this experience that we mentioned earlier about writing to the daughter of friends, did a sample chapter for him. I think it was the chapter on the age of chivalry and showed it to Neurath. And Neurath thought it was great and said, I would love you to write the book. Uh, the only trouble is he was still on the translation schedule, which is considerably shorter than the writing schedule. And he said, I, I do need the book in six weeks' time. Do you think you can do it? So my grandfather took it on almost as a dare. He was unemployed at the time. He'd got his PhD and no prospect of a job. And he just sort of plotted it out like a military campaign and uh, to see if he could pull it off, which indeed he did. What was your grandmother's role in this? Well, she, they, at the time, they had known each other for some years. I suppose you would say they were courting, though I don't know if anything was so explicit. But... Uh, they weren't yet, it was a year before they married, and certainly they were in the habit already of every weekend going for walks or going for excursions, and they often went to walk in the Wienerwald, which is the woods outside Vienna. Um, also because a lot of their friends used to go skiing, and my grandmother was a pianist, and the one she was rather sporty, but the one time she went skiing, she fell over and hurt her arm, and she thought, hang on, this would be a bit stupid if I were to sacrifice my career of my kind of Sunday activities, which is where the walks came from, because my grandfather said, I don't mind giving up the prospect of skiing. Let's let's walk. <laughs> so they, were, they were walking in the Wienerwald, and she says, um, she was the way she would tell the story, she said um, one Sunday he would pull this great kind of crumpled sheaf of papers out of his breast pocket and, and said, do you mind if I read you something that I've started? And she said, no, of course, that'd be nice, and and she said, well, it was lucky that he read it because his handwriting was always terrible, and that is indeed true. And uh, she obviously did like it. It was the first chapter that he had written of the little history of the world, and he proceeded to read the whole of it to her over the following six weeks as he would write during the week and on the Sunday on their on their uh, weekly excursion. They would take a break, and he would read the chunk of the book that he had completed that week. And I really think that... The fact that it was all read aloud in the course of the writing has had a, an enormous impact on the way it reads, and it uh, it absolutely is just completely his voice, the, the way he talked, uh, that totally works. And when, when you read it, it does beg to be read aloud. Actually, so I would quite agree. It's 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 nice on the written page, but hearing someone speak it, it's really very nice. I was wondering if you could read the section uh, when your grandfather talks about the triumph of reason in the in the 18th century. Now, if reason is given to all, it must follow that all people are of equal worth. And as you remember, that was just what Christianity had taught that all men are equal before God. 
But those who preached tolerance and reason took this argument one step further. They didn't only teach that all people were essentially equal. They demanded that they be treated equally as well. That every human being, as God's creature, endowed by him with reason, had rights that no one might or should deny him. The right to choose his own calling and to choose how he lived and the freedom to act or not to act as his reason and his conscience dictated. Children, too, should be taught not with a cane, but with reason, so that they might come to understand the difference between right and wrong. And criminals were human beings, too. No doubt they'd done wrong, but they could still be helped to mend their ways. It was dreadful, they argued, to brand a man's cheek or forehead with a red-hot iron for one wrongdoing, leaving a mark he would bear for the rest of his life so that all might say, that man is a criminal. There was something, they said, which forbade a person to be publicly humiliated. It was called human dignity. A Little History of the World is on sale now at both real and virtual booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Leonie Gombrich, go to www.yieldbooks.com podcast. Trickster harbinger of death, the smartest bird on the planet. All of these terms and more have been used to describe crows and ravens. In In the Company of Crows and Ravens, John Marsliff of the University of Washington and Tony Angel, a freelance artist and writer, discuss the fascinating relationship between humans and crows and the surprising sophistication of crow culture and crow language. John Marsliff and Tony Angel, thank you so much for being on the Yale Press podcast today. Glad to be here. You're welcome, Chris. So, the name of the book is In the Company of Crows and Ravens. Let's start with a very basic question. What's the difference between a crow and a raven? Well, the first thing, this is Tony Angel, uh, that one would notice if you had a crow next to a raven was that the raven uh, was half again larger than the crow. Uh, They're bigger birds, and they have deeper voices. Uh, If you'll allow me uh, to indulge you with a raven call. Please do. is one of uh, many, many, many calls that they have compared to the conventional <coughs> crow call that we're all familiar with. Now, is so, it, was that you, or do you actually have two birds there that you're that you're uh, coaching to give them? I have I have on one leg my my great friend macaw that I squeeze, <coughs> and on the other one is the crow <coughs> that I uh, just give a nudge to. I gotcha. Pulling your leg here. <laughs> Nevertheless. Um, there are other physical differences. You, you see ravens flying over. Uh, they're a wedge-tail bird compared to the more square or semi-rounded tail of the crow. And around here, anyway, you're likely to see crows in flocks, and ravens tend to be a little more solitary or in smaller groups. Uh, also, the way they move, uh, when you get really close to them, you'll notice the big powerful, pronounced beak of the raven. They have this big gorget uh, of feathers around their throat, uh, again, that distinguishes it from a crow that's more diminutive. Uh, What do you think, John? Well, I I agree with all of those are very distinct uh, differences between crows and ravens. In most parts of the world, also, crows are more of the city bird, and raven is more of a bird of the agricultural or wild land. Uh, that's not always the case. A lot of European crows also specialize on agriculture 
and in the U.S. in places like um, L.A., San Francisco, uh, you do get ravens in towns uh, as well as Anchorage. Ravens in town, and uh, sometimes with crows and sometimes just ravens. So you've done the research. Uh, you've written the book. Throughout the research, what's been the most surprising things that uh, you've learned or you've learned about crows? Well, one of the things I would say, uh, this is John, that um, really surprised me was the really long-standing and pervasive effect they've had on human culture. I, I kind of, you know, I, I knew they were smart. I knew they were interesting animals, but they've uh, commanded humanity's attention for a, a long time and, and will continue to do so. From from just a straight, amazing kind of uh, observation, to me, a recent set of experiments that we're conducting right now um, has, has really surprised me with respect to how crows remember the faces of particular people. We always suspected that they knew us after we'd catch them to to ban them for our research to be able to keep track of them. But we started doing this in a more experimental way by wearing a mask. And we've, we've worn a mask of a caveman on, on the Washington campus, which has about 30,000 students. And we catch our birds, caught them actually one time wearing this mask. And to this day, which is now one year later, if you wear that mask on campus, you're immediately scolded by a large number of crows, some of which were the few that we caught. But most of the ones scolding you now are ones that didn't uh, actually feel our wrath directly, but either observed us catching other birds or observed other birds scolding us and have taken on that tradition now of uh, scolding the cavemen. Now, what? Sorry, uh, Tony, did you want to say something? Well, I was just going to add that as far as what did I learn and what surprised me the most about crows, like John, I've been a student of crows for a long time, but I think the focus that we applied when we were preparing the book and uh, bringing it together brought out the remarkable range of behavior uh, that these species have, uh, something that we sometimes take for granted, a flock of crows passes by, we don't give it an awful lot of thought, but if you spend time with them and realize how much they are a part of your life in your parking lots, in your trees, in your backyards, at your bird feeder, uh, out at the picnic table, uh, and watch them for a while, you begin to see the complexities of their behavior. And also, from an artist's point of view, the absolute beauty of their gestures, postures around one another, uh, the solicitous moods of the pairs, uh, the, by any estimation, the gentleness with which they treat one another, and here, of course, are very powerful and aggressive birds that can work all kinds of uh, gestures through uh, their repertoire of, of just being around you. In the Company of Crows and Ravens is on sale now at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with John Marshleff and Tony Angel, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. And that's the end of this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. For more information about the show or to subscribe to the feed, Go to any podcast aggregator, such as iTunes, Odeo, or any number of sites, or go to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com podcast, and look for the subscription button on the podcast page. You'll also find the show notes on the Yale Press blog. My name is Chris Gondek, and if you have any comments about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. Also, don't forget about the Ask the Author segment in which I take an emailed question back to one of the authors on a previous show and hear what they have to say. Please remember, they must be authors highlighted on this show. The questions for Mark Twain, Cervantes, and Plato should be directed to your local soothsayer or Ouija board. 
And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast, which is engineered by Stephen Cray. My name is Chris Gondek, and I'm the producer and host of the show. So long until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com.